The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Varied and various variable distribution strategies. You know what? I'm not even going to try saying that five times fast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Retire with Style. I'm Alex, and I'm here with... Wade. And in the last episode, we went over some basic assumptions that we needed to begin to compare variable withdrawal strategies. Today, we're actually going to do the comparing. Right, Wade? That's right. Yeah, we're going to really dive into... (laughs) The world of variable spending. There we go. And that's a deep pool. <laughs> or is it? What do you think? <laughs> no, there, there's a lot going on there. But actually, something we'll talk about here today is I've been trying to simplify this. So if anyone read, it's now a five-year-old book, The How Much Can I Spend in Retirement? Chapter six of that book was on variable spending. It was the longest chapter of that book. And I really tried to stick with all the main assumptions used in different variable spending strategies in the subsequent years, I realized that's just way too complicated. There's so many <laughs> unnecessary, <laughs> like the real versions of some of these rules get pretty wild. But we're going to talk more about a simplified way to think about the variable spending, which in real life, because there's not a lot of software that can even do this, I think it makes sense to talk about these in, in more general terms uh, so okay. that you understand the, the basics at work and not get too caught up on well, if it hasn't been three years since this happened, then I can't do that. But I can only do that if some other threshold said, and we, we can make it easier. But we'll, we'll yeah, talk yeah. about some main variable spending strategies. Uh, and But to do that, I, I think to lay the groundwork for the episode, uh, what and I wanted to do is, you know, what, what are some main assumptions that we're using to begin to analyze all of these? Then uh, we'll go through these strategies, discuss their pros and cons, and then we'll have a bake-off to see where they land. Does that make sense, Wade? It does, yeah, yeah absolutely. All In right. that regard, we'll, we'll talk about six general strategies. Um, and a lot of this analysis was based on just a case study I did with the payroll calculator that we mentioned in the last episode, which is an Academy member, uh, Retirement Researcher Academy tool available. Uh, but so we don't have to get into, uh, we're not going to focus on exact numbers all that much. We really want to look more at the relative differences between different strategies. So I don't think we need to lay out all the capital market assumptions. Just know that behind the scenes, there's an assumed stock and bond return, assumed stock and bond volatility, uh, assumed inflation rate, and so forth. And given the context, th- this is always going to be the case with any sort of retirement calculator Behind the scenes, there's some sort of assumptions being made about future market returns. And then given that, we're going to test different variable spending strategies. Now, the good news is you don't have to agree with our portfolio assumptions, capital market assumptions, as long as we apply those same assumptions to every strategy. Right, right. (laughs) We're applying applying the same payroll and we're applying the same capital market assumptions to each strategy. Because another issue, if you just start reading all the original articles on each different variable spending strategy. Uh, you can't really compare them to each other because everyone's using different assumptions. <laughs> so at least we are talking about this in the context of comparing each rule with the same underlying capital market assumptions, uh, stock and bond returns and so forth, and with the uh, same pay rule that's calibrating the level of downside risk one takes with each strategy. And- and real quick, I know we discussed it in the last podcast, but not everyone listens to every podcast. 30 seconds or less, uh, you know, kind of vibe. What? How would you describe the, the pay rule? Because that, so that is what mm-hmm. we're using. Yeah, the pay rule is the probability you're willing to accept that your wealth falls below a particular amount by year Y of retirement. So so Bill Bingen's safe max is an example of a pay rule. And it was with the 4% rule, we accept a 0% probability 
that our wealth falls below zero by year 30 of retirement. But you can't use zero for variable spending strategies, as we talked about in the previous episode, because some of these strategies never let the portfolio drop to zero. So you do, to make it more general, you need to use a positive number. You can't let the the amount of the wealth drop to zero. But once you have some threshold that your wealth uh, can't drop below, then you, you now have a way to compare the different strategies given that they have this same underlying uh, downside risk associated with them. Because they're all going to have different spending rates. But to know, to be able to compare the, the spending rates with each other, you need the underlying assumptions to be the same. And that's what the payroll does. And we discussed it in greater detail in the last episode. We just wanted to give everyone a little bit of a preamble before we got going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably assume too much that everyone's listening to every episode but uh, if you haven't go your go mom wait your mom yeah, is okay. listening to every episode <laughs> that's right <laughs> okay all right let's let's rock and roll all right yeah and so the payroll that i am using as we begin this discussion of the different strategies was a 10 percent probability that of the initial million dollars you have your wealth falls below an inflation-adjusted $150,000 by the 30th year of retirement. So that's the payroll I'm using to compare the different strategies we'll discuss. And now we're going to back into what the spending amount can be from mm-hmm. them. That's how we can assess them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so strategy one, you're probably tired of hearing about it at this point, but it, <laughs> it is the baseline. It is the kind of the, the quote-unquote 4% rule. It's Bill Bengen's constant inflation-adjusted spending strategy. So it's we're going to define spending as a percentage of the initial portfolio balance, which gives us a baseline spending amount that we then increase for inflation. And it's not a variable spending strategy. It doesn't respond to portfolio performance other than once the portfolio hits zero, spending drops to zero. Otherwise, it is the constant inflation-adjusted amount. And we need it because we need something to compare the other strategies to. Now, because it can drop to zero, people usually take very make very conservative assumptions on this. They yeah, sort of this, build themselves these buffers or margins of safety that we've been talking about previously. Yeah, I mean, so when we talk about a conservative, a constant inflation-adjusted spending amount, benefits include you. It is constant spending, which is nice to have that smooth known budget makes budgeting more predictable. With a low spending number, you generally have a high probability of success. And because you don't let your spending increase, (laughs) this is going to be a strategy that tends to result in higher legacies than most of the other spending strategies. But that's because you're going to be spending less on average, and that's going to then translate into higher legacies on average. But with, with the negatives or the drawbacks of the strategy you are vulnerable to having that portfolio hit zero. Uh, For those who don't have other reliable income, this is a pretty risky approach to retirement. This is the unique cause of sequence risk. It's using an aggressive investment portfolio with a constant spending amount. Uh, That means if the portfolio goes down, you start spending an increasing percentage of what's left, and that digs the hole that causes the sequence of returns risk to happen. Conversely, so that's in the bad luck scenario, conversely, uh, with a high probability of success or a a low P number for the payroll, spending uh, really doesn't live up to its potential most of the time. You probably could have spent a lot more. And and so that's a drawback. And so if your goal isn't necessary to leave the highest possible legacy, this may not be the right strategy for you because it, it, it creates the risk of running out of money. But it also, most of the time, just leaves a lot of legacy at the end because you don't have the, the mechanism to enjoy yeah. that spending in retirement. Yeah, and the risk of running out of money is, look, you, you, could, you could just be very unlucky, you know, and, and you don't have enough. But because you have this buffer, this sort of margin of safety you're leaving in, most likely you're going to underspend relative to what you could have. That's the bad news. The good news, maybe, is your kids will be happy. With what's left over, <laughs> you know, but yep. that it, it uh, it's hard to get that balance. It's really hard to get that balance because you never know. But that's part of the being in the the total return quadrant. 
So what, what do the numbers point out with this one, Wade? Yeah, and so that's, again, I don't want to put too much weight on the number, but just to have a point of comparison, given the stock and bond return assumptions we had, and given this payroll where your wealth isn't dropping to zero, so there is a safety margin there, so it's not directly equivalent to the 4% rule, but just to have a number to compare with, so with this number, the, the 90% success or the 10% failure of the payroll corresponds to a 3.13% initial withdrawal rate. And I, again, I don't, I'm not saying that's my recommendation about a withdrawal rate number. That's just given the assumptions used to compare all these different strategies, this strategy comes out at 3.13%. And we can just, on a relative basis, compare that to other strategies. And that's really the main purpose. So I don't want anyone to get too hung up on the 3.13%, but really to just focus more on what happens with other strategies using the same underlying market assumptions and payroll. Okay. What's, uh, how would you describe a fixed percentage withdrawal strategy? Yeah. And so that's the exact opposite of, the constant inflation adjusted amount. And that we've talked in past episodes about sometimes people confuse the meaning of the 4% rule as fixed percentage. Fixed percentage is every year in retirement, I will take a fixed percentage of what's left of the portfolio. So if, if that number was 4%, it's every year of retirement, I'll take 4% of what's left in the portfolio. If the portfolio is growing, my spending goes up. If the portfolio is declining, my spending goes down. But this is the exact opposite of the constant inflation adjusted amount strategy, because with the amount, you're you're focusing on having the same spending amount each year. You don't worry about what percentage of the portfolio that is. With strategy number two, you're using a fixed percentage of what's left every year. You're not really worried about what amount of spending that is. So they are the exact opposite uh, strategies. I have to say this is this is immensely important. I mean, uh, as opposed to me repeating it, I can't do it better than Wade. I suggest you hit the rewind button three times. You hit thirty seconds twice, and and really listen to it again because it, it it's it's a very key concept to really just understand conceptually what this whole withdrawal rate sort of game is because i think that, that that's it many of these strategies just play off of of these concepts there's a polar ends but now there's many in between as, as you'll see so right. really try to understand what he said because everything else is just a hybrid of, of both of these you right. know and <laughs> and the other point is this is why we can't use a zero dollar amount on on the analysis to make them all because a percent of a percent will never be zero you know, it's in the last episode, you can split that penny continually, right? So that's why you pick 100,000 as an end number, or 50,000 as an end number or something like that. Mm-hmm. That that little quirk allows us now to assess them all together. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, to clear, highlight some of those points again, benefits of this strategy are it never depletes the investment portfolio. So there is no failure. No, technically. I mean, again, we might be slicing up a <laughs> penny at some point. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> technically, there's no failure with this strategy. This strategy does allow spending to increase if markets are performing at a reasonable level. Another important point that the late Dirk Cotton was really the first to point out was with this strategy, there is no sequence of returns risk. It doesn't matter what the order of returns is. If you're using a constant percentage or fixed percentage strategy, you'll always have the same wealth balance at the end of re- the, the retirement horizon. So that's another way where it's the polar opposite of the kind of 4% rule logic, which maximizes sequence risk. There is no sequence risk with this strategy. But can I can I put an example behind that? And and I just want to make sure, especially with people listening, because it could be old hat to myself and, and to you. So uh, let's say somebody took, you know, 4% from a million dollar portfolio, right? And the first year they're doing constant withdrawal, they're taking 40,000. Market drops 50%. Inflation is zero. The next year, they're still taking 40,000. Okay? And so, right, if that was and 4% so that's initially, risk. it's now 8%. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what he means by sequence risk because the portfolio, the market just just decimated that portfolio, and so you put yourself out there. So it's it's eight percent, right? 
this strategy, okay, you take 40000 the first year, fine. A million-dollar portfolio. The market drops 50%. It's a $500,000 portfolio. It's now a $20,000 distribution. It's mm-hmm. not a $40,000 distribution. It's, it's, it's 50% less on the distribution side as well. Yeah. All right. So mm-hmm. that's that's what he means by eliminate sequences because you're you're adjusting the the amount that you're taking out commensurate with the market. Let's just say drop at this point because if it's good, then great. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have that safety valve to to release the sequence risk because if the market drops or if your portfolio drops fifty percent, your spending is also going to drop fifty percent. It's a very different assumption than the four percent rule, or than the constant inflation adjusted amount rule. Uh, now that being said, because you have this release valve for sequence risk, average spending will generally be a lot higher, and the initial spending rate can be a lot higher with this strategy than with a constant inflation adjusted amount strategy. It's just if you do use a higher initial withdrawal rate, you're probably building in a higher chance that spending might decrease over time. But whether or not it ever gets below what the constant inflation adjusted amount strategy it would be, well, that's something you can can evaluate further with the software to, that can analyze that. It's quite possible it doesn't, or at least not in very often. Not now, very that, often. that's obviously the good news, right? Because you, you have that flexibility. You know, uh, with many things, its best quality could be its worst quality. And <laughs> it, it's related to the biggest disadvantage, which is if you, if you really think about it, just stepping away from it. And I agree, Wade, uh, don't worry about the numbers. Just worry about how the levers work, right? The biggest disadvantage with something like this is that paycheck is going to be volatile. I mean, you're, you know, think about 100% commission-oriented salesperson in any industry, right? Depends. Uh, this is going to be very volatile. It, it's just the nature of, of the beast. It's what you've signed up for. You know, when you're in that total return strategy with this variable spending approach. But, hey. Yeah. And so that's where it might be harder for a total return person to use this constant percentage strategy because they may not have as much reliable income and so forth. But at the same time, it's some an income protection uh, style if you build that protected floor of lifetime income, this might be a candidate of something you'd want to look at for the discretionary part of your retirement spending. That, that's a great point. That's a great point. If you're using this for – if you're a total return person and other than Social Security, you really don't want any contractual income, well, you just went from – and you're using this for, let's say, just a majority of your essential and discretionary expenses. Then you went from – in the example we put out earlier, you went from $40,000 a year to $20,000 a year. That's, that's, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't need to talk about the implications <laughs> of something like that. Right. That's rough if you don't have any other spending. But at the same time, if you had outside of that portfolio, you had a, a base cushion of $100,000 of pensions and annuities and, and Social Security. Now your spending went from 140000 to 120000 That may not be so bad. It, so it's, that's where it does relate very closely to what do you have from outside the portfolio as well? Yeah, remember, this is not retirement income. This is not investing for accumulation. So if your spending went from 40000 to 20000 because that's the strategy you decided to go on, and you you turn on the TV and CNBC, and they tell you, don't worry, over the long term, this will go up, you know, blah, blah. The market's a weighing machine, not a voting machine over the long term. You know, those kind of cute little quotes. It's not going to make you feel any better, it's simply because your income just, just got halved. And for this year, there's going to be a lot of pain. It's, it's just... It's just what it is when you signed up for that strategy. So just keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, so again, we don't want to put too much weight on this, but when we said the constant amount strategy, you had a a 3.1% initial withdrawal rate. With this strategy, the fixed percentage, calibrating the same payroll, I calculated you could have an initial 7% uh, withdrawal rate. But a 7% of what's left every year and in doing that, on average and in good market environments, you can, well, at least in good market environments, you could spend more than the constant amount strategy. On average, it might end up being pretty close over time. Uh, in bad market environments, you could have dramatic cuts to the spending 
much lower than you might have even been with the constant inflation adjusted amount. Because if you're taking 7% of a, a very small portfolio balance, it's that point again, of that may not be a whole lot of spending. And so this spending has a lot of volatility, a lot of especially downside volatility where your spending might have to be cut. And so it's it's really, it's the exact opposite. And it probably this is not going to be a popular strategy in practice, just like constant inflation adjusted amount won't be a popular strategy in practice, because then what we start to dive into is how can we find a compromise between the stability of constant inflation adjusted amount, but the, uh, the ability to manage sequence risk of constant percentage or fixed percentage. That's where but- most of the conversation of financial advisors developing variable spending strategies they're trying to find some sort of balance between those two extremes. But wait, I'd also like to agree to 100% and to give you a sense of these two extremes. And again, it's not a matter of numbers. Don't take these numbers from the standpoint of these strategies in isolation. And this is what it tells me I can do. Take them in terms of apples to apples, how they differ, right? I mean, when you when we're looking at the constant spending strategy, and I'm just looking through the notes here, the average distribution amount was 60,000, but with a standard deviation of that amount at 14,000. That means, you know, 68% of the time, it's 60,000 plus or minus 15, just to make the math easy, right? 60,000 plus or minus 15. With this one, you know, more or less, here you're talking about a $58,000 average in distribution, and a little less, but let's just say the same. But the standard deviation here is 39,000. So in any given year, you know, 68% of the time, you're talk, you're coming in at 58,000 plus or minus roughly 39,000. You can't, it, it's almost impossible to budget, you know, especially if you're considering a huge amount of this earmarked for essential expenses. But these are the extremes. These are the, the important takeaway is not this strategy is not realistic or that strategy is not realistic. It's really more these are the extremes of what we're working with now. If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M C L E A N A M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's now talk about some of the compromises. And that's where I'm, I'm hoping to simplify some of the conversation around this <laughs> of what is otherwise out there when you start reading about variable spending strategies. And so the first one of these compromises is also a strategy that Bill Bengen was the first to talk about, uh, the founder of the 4% rule. And I call this like a dollar floor and ceiling. So what, what this strategy will do is you use a constant percentage of what's left. So it has that relationship to constant percentage, but you put in a, a ceiling and a floor around that. So I'll use the constant percentage of what's left, but if that causes my spending to fall below a particular level, then the floor kicks in and I'll, I'll start spending a constant inflation adjusted amount at that floor convert. And that would be if markets aren't doing as well, if markets are doing and great. Floor, just to make sure mm-hmm. everyone knows the, the, the lingo we're using floor is okay. I start with a $40,000 a year amount, but it'll never go below $30,000. Right? Yeah. That's a yeah. you know, so, floor. It'll never go below $30,000. I just want to be clear. When you do a ceiling, it'll never go above $70,000, whatever whatever mm-hmm. that number is. I just wanted to, that's the lingo of, and how we're using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so in the context of this case study, I'd been looking at where constant amount was the 3.13% initial withdrawal rate. I look at a scenario where you could start with 3.59% with this floor and ceiling, where your ceiling would be 20% more than that. And your floor would be 15% less than that. So I'll use 3.59% of what's left every year. But if my portfolio is growing so that 3.59% of what's left is more than an inflation-adjusted $43,000 or 4.3% of the initial amount in retirement, then I, I'm not going to let my spending rise above that level. Uh, the, the ceiling would kick in, and that's more than I anticipated spending, but I'll just enjoy that. And if 
Later in retirement, if my portfolio starts to lose value and the 3.59% is now less than that number, then I'll stop using the ceiling and I'll go back to the 3.59%. Conversely, if my portfolio is losing value such that 3.59% of what's left ends up being less than $30,500 or an initial 3.05%, then the floor kicks in and I'll start spending that constant inflation adjusted amount of the the $30,500 until if my portfolio recovers, then I might eventually kick back into the constant percentage, but it's, you're putting guardrails around the spending. It's your spending is going to fluctuate in this band between your ceiling and your floor. So if you, so think about it conceptually, again, what you've done is you're using the, the variable spending from a, as a percent of the portfolio, but as Wade said, these guardrails sort of lock you in. And so it has a, the, the constant component to it, you know, the, the concept coming from the concept from the constant. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a nice sort of in between. And so the game really becomes, what do you want that floor? What do you want that ceiling to be? Mm-hmm. And, and wait, just for, cause people could be asking, why did you choose 20% more and 15% less? Uh, that was really kind of calibrated with how Bill Bengen described the rule in his book of where he went through a bunch of these different strategies. But as it turns out, the ceiling's actually not all that important. <laughs> you, yeah. you really don't even necessarily need a ceiling uh, because if the portfolio is doing well, you're unlikely to get into a scenario where you're later going to be dropping below the floor. The floor number is much more important. Yeah, if the portfolio does well, you've kind of gotten out of that danger zone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, key the Kenny Loggins, but you got an out of that. <laughs> Hence, it really is the, the floor at some point that can come back and bite you. Mm-hmm. And also, this is, I, I like this as a variable spending strategy. Uh, in some sense, well, most of these strategies, in some sense, dominate the, the 4% rule idea, the constant inflation adjusted amount idea. It's the least efficient way to approach retirement. And this is a good example of where you can see that that with this type of strategy, you can generally spend quite a bit more than the constant inflation adjusted amount strategy. And even the, this strategy does create risk of portfolio depletion. Whenever you have a dollar floor, there is a risk of portfolio depletion. But generally, that dollar floor isn't going to be all that much less. It was constant amount. We were at the 3.13% withdrawal rate. With this floor that I used in this example, it would have been like a 3.05% withdrawal rate, a little bit less. But generally, with just a little bit uh, more downside spending risk, you have so much more upside spending potential. And so it's really, in a way, almost dominates the constant inflation adjusted amount strategy. And it's uh, very attractive in that regard, at least relative to a constant inflation adjusted amount strategy. I agree, Wade. I, I think this one, just based on client interaction and, and the like, I, I think this one reflects the most. It's, it's not a mirror, but I think this one reflects the most of all the spending strategies we've talked about and will talk about in terms of what, what a professional relationship looks like when, when an advisor is sort of managing distributions. Because it's – look, it's recognizing right off the bat there are no absolutes and it's really something where – you kind of, you know, you're always course correcting, and and I think that's that that's in a funny sort of way, that's the the the, the key to a proper retirement income plan. You know, once you've selected a strategy and you're going down the strategy, give you the one, you know, have one that allows you to to course correct on certain areas, and if you're again and you're going to be in the total return style with optionality focus, I don't know, this this kind of seems to hit all those chords really well mm-hmm. yeah now the next strategy we'll discuss in a way is really just a variation of the floor and ceiling rule where we eliminate the the ceiling and this is so it's called the ratcheting rule it's based on michael Kitsis a few years back had an article about the ratcheting rule and that's where i was kind of joking a little bit earlier his version of the ratcheting rule is super complicated. <laughs> like you, you only increase your spending if your portfolio rise more than like 50% from where it started. 
and then you make a discrete increase to spending, but you can't do that more than every three years. Uh, there's so much uh, in that. Is that and, does that include and I modeled a leap year? that. I'm sorry. Does that include it? Does that include the <laughs> only leap in leap year? years? Only <laughs> no. no in, in his in his defense, though, I think it's it's not so much as saying this is a reflection of reality and this is what you should do. I, I think they're just looking for hey, I, I think these are things that that researchers look and they're just trying to get a better understanding of levers. And it just hey, wow, this something like this could work. I, yeah. I, I don't think it's yeah. anything more than that. Right, right. And it, but and I do talk about the full version of that rule and that how much can I spend in retirement book. But when I was looking at this again more recently to update, I just recognized we can reflect what the ratcheting rules purpose and intentions are in a much simpler manner. And that is instead of treating that the constant amount, remember, just not that we're putting a whole lot of weight on these exact numbers, but it's more about their relative behavior. We talked about the constant amount strategy in this context of 3.13%. Well, what we could do with this ratcheting rule is 3.13% is now the constant percentage that we use, but we also apply a, a floor at the 3.13%. So that Wait, wait. Uh, it just, again, <laughs> I say this because I'm trying to put myself in the, in the listeners' heads and maybe they like it, maybe they don't. It is what it is. Right. If you three point three one percent, where did that come from? Again, you mentioned it at the beginning, but I want to make sure people realize that was the initial number that came out. Well, you, you say it. I don't want to say it. Where, yeah, where did it was that based come from? on the the market assumptions that I, I didn't fully explain what those were, but that was just beside the point. That as long as we have uh, market assumptions that correspond properly for each strategy, we can compare the strategies to each other, and based on that pay rule of accepting a 10% chance that remaining wealth drops below uh, an initial million drops below 150,000 inflation adjusted by the 30th year of retirement, 3.13% was just what calibrated, giving you that 90% success rate for that payroll or that potential 10% failure rate. And so now we apply that to all of them. Yeah. So what, what we're doing now is the ratting rule may sound complex as I describe it, but I assure you it's a lot simpler than the original Kitsi's version of the ratcheting rule. It's take that 3.13%, but instead of using that as constant amount, use that as constant percentage, but have a floor of $31,300. So have that floor in place. So that and basically what it's saying is you'll start your retirement spending at 3.13%. If your portfolio is growing, you take 3.3% of what 3.13% of what's left you'll you'll be able to spend more if your portfolio's declining then the floor kicks in and your spending never like if your portfolio is losing value this rule kicks in to become a constant amount rule you, you spend the 31,300 plus inflation if your portfolio is doing well this uh, rule translates into a, a percentage you you spend more you send a, a percentage of that higher portfolio balance so your spending can go up with this, but it can't go down unless your portfolio hits zero, which any anytime you put a dollar floor, you run the risk of portfolio depletion. But you're not going to be, it's just like the 4% rule idea or just like the constant amount idea. You're never going to spend below a particular starting threshold. Your spending can only go up. It can't go down other than if it goes to zero. So effectively, instead of creating a hybrid, it's just alternating back and forth. Between two philosophies. Yeah, it's, a, it's a constant percentage when you're doing well and a, a constant amount when you're doing, when the portfolio is losing, drop below its initial value. And it can raise your average spending quite dramatically in that regard. So it's, it's another strategy that pretty much dominates the constant amount strategy just because it doesn't really take on much more in the way of any downside risk, but uh, it does give you a lot more upside potential you're spending could grow quite quite a bit compared to where it started on average and, and so forth uh, with this particular strategy. So you're not creating more downside risk, but you're just when mar- because the four percent rule idea is meant to be conservative, if markets are doing okay, the ratcheting rule is letting you take advantage of that and increasing your spending to enjoy more of that market performance without creating more risk on the downside. 
or I mean, technically it has to create a little more risk, but it's just so minuscule that it's, it's hard to even see in the Monte Carlo simulations. I just find it interesting how the floor really plays into all of these too. Yeah. Yeah. Any hard dollar floor is going to get you, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, that that's going to be the focus, but it's making sure you have a way to spend more when the, when you're not getting hit by that really bad sequence of returns and so forth. Okay. And then what's number five? The, the so number five is <laughs> the, uh, the classic, and it's one of the most complicated variable spending strategies in existence. But I, again, I try to simplify it. But it's the, the Jonathan Guyton and William Klinger, I say inspired decision rules, if you've ever <laughs> <laughs> reviewed. He had, there's four decision rules, and they've, they've changed over time. But there's four basic decision rules and what I'm trying to do is to simplify those decision rules. Cause it, it's kind of like with Michael Kitsis where it's like, well, if it's a leap year, you do this and something like that, where <laughs> to apply them precisely as they defined them. And for you those out be there, Michael, good with Mike, wait, Michael and wait are friends. <laughs> they kid because they love. All right, I just wanted to put it out there. <laughs> but no, it's the original versions of these are like, well, look at your initial spending rate. If it drops by more than 20% from that, you increase your spending by 10%. And I'm trying to simplify that for how I'll explain it here today. But we keep the spirit of what those rules are. And so we should probably mention what the decision rules are and how kind of I'm providing a more simplified version of that. And and so, well, again, context, the floor and ceiling rule we talked about before, that's based on a constant percentage strategy, but where you apply dollar ceiling and dollar floors. The bill, the, the Guyton and Klinger decision rules, they're inspired from a constant inflation adjusted spending strategy, but where you apply guardrails that are more percentage-based. So it's kind of a different approach to, you're going to use a constant inflation-adjusted amount, but you're going to apply some percentage guardrails instead of the opposite, which is use a constant percentage amount, but then you apply some dollar guardrails. And so I hope that's clear uh, what those guardrails are. So they have a capital preservation rule. And that capital preservation rule is you don't want your withdrawal rate from what's left, your current withdrawal rate, that percentage of what's left to grow too high. So you're going to keep using this constant inflation adjusted amount, but if your portfolio is declining, that means your withdrawal rate's going up. The capital preservation rule is, okay, we're going to put a ceiling on that. Don't, or I guess, yeah, ceiling. (laughs) Don't let your current withdrawal rate get too high. And so that's going to start to reduce your spending because it's going to kick into just don't spend more than this percentage of what's left. And that's going to help preserve your assets. And notice how you said percentage of what's left. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the prosperity rule, which is you spend a constant amount every year, but if your portfolio is growing, your current withdrawal rate, your percentage of what's left is going down. The prosperity rule is going to put a floor. Don't ever spend less than whatever percent of your portfolio that you decide. And then that means if your portfolio is doing well and growing, it's going to allow the spending to start to increase. The prosperity rule lets you take advantage of market growth. Then you have the withdrawal rule, which is because this is a constant inflation adjusted amount strategy, the withdrawal rule is just telling you if the in cases where the capital preservation rule or the prosperity rule don't otherwise apply, well, if the market was down in the previous year, skip the inflation adjustment for your spending this year. And if it falls down by two years in a row? <laughs> yeah, then you'd skip the spending inflation two years in a row. So it's another, it's related to the cap, it's helping you preserve capital in a bad market environment, but it's... It's one of these deals where it's, okay, let's not take the inflation adjustment in certain years. Then they have their fourth rule is about when you spend from your stocks and from your bonds and so forth. But I, uh, our payroll calculator doesn't vary the asset allocation, so we can't directly model that. And that's more of a, a minor detail. It, this so one's the almost like playing... primary rules here, capital preservation, it's... prosperity, withdrawal. <laughs> 
it feels like you're playing three dimensional te- chess sometimes though I, I know it's 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 simple but it's just a lot of things to to juggle I, I'm almost my reaction here and it's always this if you're gonna go through all of this you really gotta start thinking man have you taken the reset like is, is the total return really right for you because <laughs> it, it, it it's it's kind of like I'm in here but then you have all these caveats that you have to implement and it just seems I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. definitely you need some Excel programming skills to actually, if you're a do-it-yourself investor, and this is I, what I'm explaining is a simplified version of it because, like, <laughs> I, <laughs> the actual Guyton and Klinger decision rules are much, well, I want to say much more complicated, but there's a few more layers of complication than what I've explained. It's not that it's it's one of those that it sounds like you know when you go to the doctor and you're taking. You're taking all of these supplements, one, something for this, something for that, something that, 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 you know, and it's this laundry list. And you tell the doctor and the doctor looks at you and says, you know what, just eat your fruits and vegetables and you'll be fine. You know, it, it's, it sounds like that, that this kind of vibe where it's like if you're going to if you're going to do a total return and you're going to implement a, a variable spending strategy, you know what, the <laughs> You know, even the ratcheting makes a lot of sense relative to this one. But you know, why don't you do a dollar of a dollar floor and ceiling and, and withdrawals and pick something reasonable and call it a day, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, yeah that's it, ultimately <laughs> why the dollar and ceiling approach is probably my favorite variable spending strategy. It's like it is pretty straightforward. Yeah, because you can. And it, I, I think I'm, it it does match better with what people probably do in real life, which is. Yeah, if if markets are doing well, you're going to spend more. If markets are doing poorly, you're going to spend less. But you might have I, I, some I, kind of. I don't want to go. I mean, in, in real life, your floor is probably a little bit more dynamic. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you just play it by ear. I mean, if you're literally yeah. thinking out loud every year, hey, am I going to follow the? How should I just my capital preservation rule? I know I can't forget about the prosperity rule. I know don't forget about the withdrawal rule. If this is going through your mind. <laughs> You probably got other issues than what your withdrawal rate is, right? Because it's just a lot of lifting. It's is it worth the calories? I don't know. It, I'll leave it at that. I, you 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 folks know where how where I stand on that. It, it's interesting, just because if you could say what is the most famous variable spending strategy, it probably is the Guyton and Klinger decision rules. And I don't, I don't know why that's the case. I think some of that is first, first mover. Market. Yeah, I think yeah. some of that is first just mover first advantage. mover. Yeah, and, you know, you got a couple of publications out. But I, I would guarantee – I'm not guarantee that's too strong a word. But I would say human nature wins. And if, if you ask me human nature, which one of these makes kind of sense, it's not the extreme of sustainable withdrawal rate. It's not the extreme of percentage, you know, withdrawal rate. It's something in the middle. And that's dollar and floor and ceiling withdrawals, uh, you know, and then it's just a matter of picking your preference of what, how deep you want your floor and how high you want your ceiling. And even then the ceiling doesn't matter too much because that's just gravy. It's where you want your floor, right? And that's relative to, I think your floor is probably something relative to where your essential expenses are. If, if you're a total return person, you know, if you're, if you're protected income, risk wrap, time segmentation, and you're using this for discretionary, then your floor is probably not that low. That That's, mm-hmm. that's it. Full stop. <laughs> Making a lot of assumptions yeah. there, but conceptually, if you understand it, I, I think you'll come to a similar conclusion. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, just to finish the discussion around Guyton and Klinger, and it's kind of how it was presented <laughs> in their initial <laughs> research. <laughs> Besides that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> well, it can it can increase the initial withdrawal rate, and that was the big selling right. point. So we talked give, about again give me just an aneurysm though, figuring here. it out. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could. <laughs> it in that, but in that regard, it's. Even though it's based on a constant amount of strategy, once that capital preservation rule kicks in, it really becomes more of a constant percentage strategy. And that's, it can cause your spending to drop quite a bit. So we said like constant amount, we're saying around 3.1%. This is more an initial withdrawal rate of 4.6%. But Remember, constant percentage, we were up at 7%. This is just kind of a hybrid of (laughs) use a much higher initial withdrawal rate. 
but that's because it builds in a lot more capacity for reduced spending in, in the future. And so it ends up in practice behaving a bit more like a constant percentage strategy, which is start with more, but have the run the risk of having to make much bigger cuts later in retirement. And that's when you see the strategy sold as, oh, we can raise your initial withdrawal rate. That that's all. That's the reason. It's because probably spending is going to have to be reduced by quite a bit later on, and that's why you need something like the payroll to start calibrating the downside risk that each strategy creates, because it's not part of the initial research that you can't compare the initial versions of these articles with each other because they have such different assumptions. Yeah. Uh, wait. I, I think all of these. Let's say we discussed the constant inflation, fixed percentage, dollar floor and ceiling, uh, what's it, ratcheting, and uh, the guy in Klinger. What? what and there's you... one more we should mention that's oh, not in the away. notes, but I, I already teased it. And it's just the uh, the idea of some sort oh, of required RD, minimum distribution yeah. rule. That's right. That that's right. With required minimum distributions starting at age 72, but uh, they have these tables for younger ages as well because of inherited IRAs. What percentage of the portfolio do you need to distribute each year to pay taxes? The RMD rules are meant to be conservative because it's based on a a 0% return assumption. It's based on two uh, individuals with one spouse 10 years older than the other spouse. And so you can modify those rules to calibrate them to the pay rule. But it's it's just the idea. It's, It's a cousin of constant percentage, but it's actually more academically appealing because it's as you get older, your time horizon gets shorter, and so you spend an increasing percentage of what's left. I, and so that is another, especially for discretionary spending, someone might want to take a look at that sort of rule as well. I've never thought I'd say this, but I, I kind of agree with the government here. I, I, I kind of like this one a lot in a funny sort of way, simply because you said the academic piece. You spend relative to the probability you're going to be alive, kind of, right? And it's, it's kind of figuring out for you. Hey, you know, the government wants their money back and taxes, so they figure out, okay, you should be pulling out this much. I need this much. I need this much. You know, that kind of thing. So it it, it does it for you. It, it does the math for you. They do the math for you in a funny sort of way. So piggybacking off that, you know, hey, mm-hmm. why not, right? But uh, out of all of these, as opposed to saying, okay, this one has this downside, this one has this upside, and there's numbers and, and all of that, I, 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 think, I think people look to you. For it's almost like when you're going back to the doctor analogy. If this was your mom, what would you do? Kind of thing, right? Uh, well, wait. If you had to go this, gun to your head, you have to pick a, a total return strategy. None of this, oh, income protection, risk wrap as my essential expenses. Forget that. You know, you, you have to pick one. What do you think? Or, you know, I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's too. Yeah. What, what, what well, do you like? No. If I had to pick one of these, uh, and it's more for total return because RMD maybe is more attractive for as a the lifestyle component of an income protection or risk wrap. No caveats. Total returns. If I'm total returns and I have to pick one, I think it's the Bill Bingen dollar floor and ceiling withdrawals that's got the best combination of ease of use, aligns with what, how people actually probably think about retirement spending. Uh, has the ability to benefit from market upside with spending, has a, a nice overall balance of features. So I'd go with the the dollar floor and ceiling. Uh, Is that like a Volvo? You got the Volvo? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's got the safety. No, I, and... <laughs> I like, actually, I, I agree with you. I, I think that that makes life easier. I think the only question that becomes, what's the floor you feel comfortable with? You know, mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, even ratcheting rule I like because it's sort of giving yourself a raise. You know, I just yeah, don't yeah, know. The ratcheting rule is actually <laughs> a modified dollar floor and ceiling rule. Yeah, it's just giving yourself a raise. You know, uh, you know when, when you can when you get them, it's saying okay, now give yourself a raise, now give yourself, which is yeah, you no know ceiling, what? There, there's but... there's some truth to that with practical application to uh, client relationships because at a certain point you are telling the client, hey, you know, you can take more out. You know, we don't need to have the, the floor that, that we've established. We can include it and, 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 and bump it up. But for ease of use, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the dollar floor and ceiling makes a lot of sense. And the reality is life, th- these are just rules, frameworks, right? The beauty of a framework is that it automates things. 
And so that that helps you from a behavioral standpoint remain disciplined. And so I love the framework of the dollar floor and ceiling. Ratcheting rule, you have to make that decision. Am I going to give yourself, am I going to give myself a raise? Sure, there's a framework to do it, but you still have to press press the button, right? The dollar and floor ceiling is cool. And then when life comes at you fast that you need to do a spending on something that was unforeseen for whatever reason, again, assuming you're just total return approach, you know what? Reassess from there. But I, I, I agree with you as well. I, I like this one too. Okay, so at I least my mom does. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown does it again. <laughs> Way to go, Wade. <laughs> uh, is that I'm it? Kind of. Oh my goodness! Tear in my eye because this is actually the last episode of this. <laughs> we've covered. In the... Go on, go on, go on. <laughs> well, we've covered the four percent rule. We've covered like total return spending from investment type strategies at this point. So we'll have to figure out what our next round of conversations is going to be about. But that was chapter four of the retirement planning guidebook. That was spending from investments in retirement. I I think we, we talked about quite a bit over this last however many episodes. And next we're going to bring in uh, an advisor from McLean, uh, Brian Bass, yeah, if you want to talk yeah, about previewing. Sure, sure. Just... Wait, you sounded like uh, Inigo <laughs> Montoya from uh, from The Prince's Bride when he when he finally gets the six-fingered man and he says, I've been in the revenge business for so long. Now that it's <laughs> over, I don't know what to do with myself or yeah, something like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this, this concludes the arc on total return we'll revisit Although we will we'll have yeah. a, a guest next week yeah yeah, yeah. well what i was gonna say is like the, our, our part of it what we wanted to do is we stress the look this is the research right what we want to bring to date what we want to bring you up to speed is what's the practical application of this and this is i think you got echoes of it during t- today's episode quite a bit you know even asking wait if this is your mom what do you do you know point blank as opposed to what's the 10th percentile, 90th percentile and all of that. What, what do you do? And so what we want to do is we're going to bring in Brian Bass. We've had him before uh, just to talk about the practical application of these. What, what happens actually in the wild as opposed to in a textbook? Because I think that's very, very important. And uh, we'll take it from there. Thank you, everyone, for taking us through this, uh, the, the total return piece. We'll, we'll conclude it. With one more of these, which I think is is actually, you know, very, very practical. And uh, there it is. Wade? Okay. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. And we'll catch you next week. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 